it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks. So welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. As you can see, the folks that are watching a video now can see that we have one of our good friends back. The semi-bald homeless guy on the internet, Brian Feraldi, is here to join us again today to talk to us about all things stocks. So for the two or three people of you out there that are not familiar with Brian, Brian is a financial educator that shares a lot of his knowledge. He's very active on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, fool.com, and he has this great new book out, which I highly, highly recommend, especially for beginners. Why does the stock market go up? Everything you should know or you should have been taught about investing in school, but work. So, Brian, thank you again for coming back to join us today. We really appreciate it, and we're looking forward to our chat today. So, I guess tell us what's been going on with you, and what's what's what have you been seeing in the markets lately? The markets have been a little wild recently. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but <laughs> the last the last three years have been some of the most extreme volatility that I've I've seen in my investing career. And I've been investing for just about 20, 20 years now. It seemed like 2020 was the year where you could do no wrong buy anything. In fact, the, the the lower quality, the thing that you bought, the better you were likely to do. And 2021 through 2022 has been the exact opposite, where you could buy anything, even even the highest quality businesses out there, and you're probably down on your, your investment. Um, that is a really hard thing for people to wrap their, their heads around. And this is why investing in stocks has the reputation that it does. So many people don't understand it. All they see is a number squiggling around. They think that it's rigged. And when you see stocks go straight up in 2020 and straight down in 2022, and so many people entered, started investing in late 2020, and they're down 
20, 30, 40, 50% in like 18 months. It's very understandable why many people just throw up their hands and say, investing doesn't work. It's rigged. The market's terrible, et cetera. So we have a big challenge as financial educators to convince people to zoom out because your whole life is lived zoomed in. Mm, That's very well said. Maybe help us zoom out. Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. So give us some light at the end of the tunnel. What you know, you remember a time where stocks didn't always go down, it seems. So can you bring us back to a stock or two that would fit in that criteria of being one where, hey, this is actually a pretty good example of when things can go well and what people could maybe think for the next 10 years. So maybe take us back like five, 10 years and and break down the stock that you looked at before that did really well. Sure. So when you're measuring your investing results, one tricky thing is that you're constantly getting false feedback, right? If you buy a a stock or an index today, you're going to know within a few seconds whether you're up on that investment or you're down on that investment. And it's really easy to look at that and say, oh, I made a good decision or, oh, I made a bad decision. The tricky thing about investing is there's a long lead time between you making a decision and you actually knowing whether or not that decision was a good one. Or, or not. And if you invest in individual stocks like, like I do, that, that, that lag can be measured in three year periods or five year periods. But all along the way, while you're waiting to see, was that a good, smart thing to do or a dumb thing to do? You're going to be up on your investment or you're going to be down in your investment based on what is happening in the overall macro environment. This is why it's so critical if you're going to invest uh, the way I do, which is in individual companies, that you do your best to focus your energy on following the business performance, looking at the company, how the company is doing, which direction revenue is heading, which direction margins are heading. Is the company profitable? What's its balance sheet look like? Those are, those are the signals to pay attention to. Everything else about investing is noise. The stock, the day, the daily day, the day-to-day gyrations of the stock movement is noise. And that is the thing that 99% of people are hyper, hyper focused on. So it's really hard to, to, to remind yourself to zoom out and look through, look beyond the stock price, but that's what you have to, to do. When I think back to some of the best investments that I've made, over the last five or or 10 years, pretty much in every case, when I bought those companies, that looks like a dumb decision at some point, right? Many Many of my biggest winners of all time from peak to trough fell 50%, 60%, even 70% along the way to delivering multi-bagger returns for me. And the really tricky thing about investing is that if the best companies did that, the worst companies did that and then they just never, never recovered. So it's really hard to figure out in real time, is this a temporary blip or is this a permanent blip? But this is why when I'm making investments, which I'm, which I try to constantly do, I'm buying them all the time. What I'm doing is I'm asking myself, do I think that this company, if, if it successfully executes, can be, a, can be multiple bigger than it is today, three years from now, five years from now, and, and 10 years from now? And I just know and I have faith that if I consistently do that, while I'm going to be wrong a whole lot, I'm going to occasionally be really, really right. And when I'm really, really right on an, on, on an investment, the gains on that investment will pay for all of my mistakes combined. And I'm thinking of one in particular, and it's just because we we had a quick chat before coming on and recording. I feel like there's this misconception that with investing, 
you know, you, you talk about having to wait three or five years or 10 years and it's like, man, do I ever get to enjoy the fruits of a good investment? I know you've, you've done that and I think it's an inspiring thing because when I was first starting, I heard a similar story with one of my colleagues. So can you talk about the stock that you had that happened with? Sure. I've been, I've been fortunate enough to have several companies do very, very well for me and deliver, you know, 10, 10 plus bagger returns for me. However, my, my biggest winner of all time has been, has been Tesla. This is a company that I personally would have never invested in 10, 10 plus years ago because it was losing, losing money. It was in an industry that I don't follow, don't care about, and generally has very poor economics, which is the auto industry. It had a very short, high, short interest. So a lot of people were betting against it. And the, the odds historically were massively, massively stacked against Tesla. However, one of my investing mentors, one of the co-founders of the Motley Fool, his name is David Gardner. He recommended Tesla. And I literally made fun of him the next time I saw him about that investment. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is what you're recommending. But after I studied the company, looked, learned more about it, I actually changed my mindset and bought a very teeny slice of Tesla for, for myself more than, more than 11 years ago. And that is an investment that has just paid off spectacularly well. I would not have guessed in a million years that Tesla was going to do what it has done, but it is it is approaching. If if it's not a fifty x return for me, it's 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 higher than that. It's somewhere along those lines. And then in twenty twenty, because the stock was up so tremendously for me, I'd actually been eyeing buying a Tesla for myself. And there's no way I could convince my wife to, to, to do that. <laughs> However, I was able to do so because one, I got my kids interested and that's a good way to, to do it. But the two, I, I, I said that we would sell some of our uh, Tesla position and we would pay for the car uh, that way. So that was me actually being able to realize the fruits of my gains, of my extreme patience with that stock and actually buying a Tesla. But I had to wait over over 10 years of owning that stock and, and dealing with the volatility for, for that to pay off as, as big as it did. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Obviously, we've we've chatted before on this show, and if people haven't listened, I recommend they check it out. But I don't want to like paint you into a bucket and say that like all of your investing strategies are kind of like a stock like that because I know you have a wide range of different kinds of stocks in your portfolio. But I kind of want to double click on that idea of looking for a stock like a Tesla just because I think that's not something we cover much on the show in general. So can you take us maybe like behind the scenes of, and maybe we could do it with Tesla or maybe we could do it with a different company, but like, all right, this company might sound interesting. Maybe it's out of my circle of competence. It's something I'm not necessarily comfortable with, like you said, in the auto industry. But where did how did you get from the mindset of, I'm really skeptical about this to, okay, I feel like maybe this thing has a shot and then kind of t- walk us through that. Sure. So Tesla was a very weird purchase for me in so many ways. In general, nowadays when I'm when I'm investing, what I what I am personally looking for is companies that are very high quality. High quality to me means that they are they're profitable, they're growing quickly. They have very debt-free balance sheet. They have tons of cash. Employees like working there. The management team is is vested, owns a lot of stock, has diversified customer base, growth opportunities galore. Like All these factors, to me, dictate whether a company is worth investing in or, or not. Uh, when I look back 10 years ago, when you were investing in Tesla, it did not check many of those boxes. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a weird investment in so many ways. And at the time, I viewed it as an asymmetric risk reward bet. I knew at the time that it was a very risky, risky company. Uh, however, I also felt that on the small chance that this works out, the payoff could be enormous. And, and, and it just so happens that Tesla has defied so many odds and has just become massive, massive uh, winner. But I knew the odds were stacked heavily against me at the beginning. And when I encounter a company like that, I'm willing to take a very small part of my portfolio, like 1% of my portfolio, and buy a handful of companies like that, going in knowing that I'm going to be wrong a lot. Like a whole bunch of those are going to, to, to flame out. But occasionally, I'm going to catch lightning in a bottle. And if I can just do that occasionally, maybe one out of every 20 times, like literally one out of 20 times, that the, the gains are, could be so big that that endeavor is, work, is worthwhile. 
But nowadays, when I'm, when I'm investing, I'm primarily looking for the, uh, the, a combination of the following three things. First, I'm looking for very high quality companies. And I have a checklist that I take companies through to determine quality. The second thing I'm looking for is massive upside potential. So I want a high quality company that I also believe has the potential to 10, 10 times in value. So for that to happen, the market cap, the size of the company today has to be to a point where I could envision a 10x return. And then three, I'm looking at the valuation of the company. And what I'm trying to do when I'm deploying capital is buy whatever company at, at any given moment has the, the highest combination of those three things. So business quality, upside potential, and, and, and best valuation. And that, that kind of is always changing, but I'm, I'm, that, that's my drip. general strategy is to continually buy whatever company is the number one uh, across, across those three criteria and just do that continually. And if I stick to that process for a long enough time period, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a smile on my face. Yeah, for sure you will. So I guess, can we kind of dive into each of those three sections a little bit and maybe walk through a company or two and kind of so people can kind of get, you know, an insight into the the crazy brain there and see kind of how that works for, for you? Sure. So let's take a company that I like a lot that is also huge. I think it's extremely high quality, but isn't talked a lot about despite being, I think, almost a $200 billion company. So one of one company that I think is a, a very, very high quality company is Adobe Systems. I mean, everybody knows Adobe for Photoshop, for Acrobat, for Premiere, for their suite of tools that they have. I don't think people realize how big and important and just what a monster winner Adobe has been for investors over time. And for full disclosure, this is a company that I own, in case that wasn't obvious. <laughs> I have owned for many, many years and plan on owning for many, many more. And Adobe today is worth 204 billion dollars 204 billion dollars which i think is way more massive than than you would assume but just just ticking through some of the things i like about this company its balance sheet is very strong has a, a lots of cash not that much debt it has a very high gross margin so the amount that it makes off of every every dollar in sales that it that it makes it keeps a very high percentage of that it has very high returns on capital it's free cash flow positive it's profitable uh, hopefully uh, at this stage, it should be profitable, right? It's been around for like 30 or 40 years. I think no Adobe has built itself a moat. Once you start using Adobe's tools and get spend all that time, it's very hard to switch away. I think it is still has lots of growth potential ahead of it. The company has been moving aggressively into the business market. So not just providing tools to end consumers, but also providing tools that help with marketing and, and business kind of encroaching on Microsoft's turf. And they're doing so successfully. It's got a wonderful CEO that has been at the company for a few decades now. He gets glowing reviews on, on Glassdoor. The, the place is a wonderful place to work. And the stock itself has not only smashed the market, which is something that I consider to be a huge positive, but they also buy back stock regularly, have a diversified customer base. And I generally think the business itself is very low risk. So this is a company that I have owned for a couple of years. It's been a big winner and I could easily see holding on to this thing for another decade. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, that's that's Sorry, amazing. It it seems to be in that sweet spot of still having high growth and yet 
being one that it's harvesting a little bit in that they buy back a lot of shares. Mm-hmm. So investors almost get the best of both worlds if they can, if it can continue. I would never have guessed that this company has been around for so long. I mean, it's on, I think it was created in the eighties. So it's like literally 40 plus years old, still growing its top line, double digits. So more than, more than 10% per year. And thanks to stock buybacks, it's growing its bottom line even faster. Uh, than that, which is not something you see of companies that have been around this long and are this big and this uh, mature. Uh, so for, for those reasons, I think the company still has a very bright future ahead. I think if you're, I don't know if you want to call it like, maybe not digital marketing, but like if you're in the illustrator space or you're familiar with one of the tools they do because you interact with it as a hobby or as a job, Adobe maybe sounds super intuitive. What about somebody who has never come across a product like Adobe? How would they get best get educated on those products so they can kind of get a grasp on just what makes it so sticky? So the way that I judge companies such as this, which I may or may not be of consumer is, is it's really two, two, twofold. Every company has a story. Right. If you dig into the annual report or if you go to the about us section of a company's website, especially if you go to the investor relations tab, what that company is trying to do is to present to you the case for investing in, in, in their company. And anyone that's worth their salt will have a very convincing presentation that says, here's all the great things that we do. Here's all the reasons why you should in- invest in us. So I always read through that and I'm asking myself the entire way. Does this seem logical? Does this company seem like it's reaching for things that are un- un- unobtainable? Or what, what are they trying to do? In Adobe's case, while I'm not a user of many of their products, I mean, everybody knows PDFs. Everyone knows Acrobat. Everyone knows many people have used their, their e-signature tools, etc. But beyond just seeing, okay, this is what we want to do, I also want to see a track record of the company actually doing and actually executing on the things that they are are, are talking about. So I, I, I use the story part of the business, if you will, to create a thesis for myself about what this company has said it's going to do and what it's going to do moving forward. And then I look at the actual track record of the business. I look at revenue. I look at margins. I look at profits. I look at the balance sheet, to, which is like the wake that a company produces to say, is it actually doing what it says that it's going to do? If I see a company that tells a, a good story that seems reasonable and has a track record for executing on that story, that is a company that I believe in general is worth betting on, right? My, my favorite investing thesis that's out there is when you see something that's working and you say, I bet that thing that's working is going to keep working. Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. to me is a fairly low risk bet. It's a much higher risk bet to say, this is a management team that's unproven, a business model that's unproven, and here's what they say they want to do and actually have that company execute uh, on it. That's why Tesla was a bit of a weird investment for me 10 years ago because they had these grand ambitions, but they didn't have a track record established of them actually executing on. Now they do. Now they clearly have a track record of, of, of executing on that. But I do think when you're investing, you do have to be have have a have the mindset of this company has a story, this company has a vision for what they want to do, and you have to back that up with well, prove that you've actually done it. Yeah, that's that's very insightful. So I guess the the sticking point for me 
is it it's the valuation and that's always you know that's always the 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 trouble spot for me is i i can get excited about a company like adobe or intuit or you know pick name insert here and it it's it's hard to get over the valuation part so can you kind of talk to us about what your thoughts on valuation are and how you kind of work through those different ideas Yes. Valuation, first off, let's acknowledge, is one of the trickiest things about investing. And you, if you, there is a broad spectrum of, of people when it comes to, to valuation. On the one hand, on the conservative side is, is people that consider them to be self value investors. And the lens that they see the world through investing is valuation first, right? They'll buy garbage, a garbage business if it's cheap enough. Right. As if you give me a terrible business at two times earnings, I'll buy it. Right. right. Because it's like, well, the business isn't that bad. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum is people who don't look at valuation at all. It's not a part of their process. The only thing they care about is upside potential and the quality of, of the business. And this is how a lot of venture capitalists in, invest. Right. They just want they're they're interested in a story and upside. And they're willing to swing and strike out a whole lot because eventually they'll, eventually they'll buy the next Airbnb. They'll buy the next Facebook. They'll buy the next whatever huge winner is, is out there. And I, I that's how I, I, I view it. I view it as like a, a spectrum. When I first started investing, I was, oh, I was very much a value investor. The lens that I saw the world through was valuation first. Over time, I've learned through trial and error and studying other investors, that it actually makes far more sense to look at business quality first and actually look at valuation as a component of investing, but not everything to do with investing. But when 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 you're judging whether or not valuation is is important, I think it matters greatly where this company is in its in its growth cycle. So imagine for a second that a, we we found a business today. And we have huge plans for our business over time. And our business goes on to be hugely successful. In the beginning, when we were hyper-focused on the opportunity and growth, it's not uncommon for us to have very little revenue and no profits. In fact, we could be losing money for the business because all of our energy is focused on top-line growth, executing on the, the opportunity. As we're successful and our business matures, suddenly our losses decrease over time and we eventually reach break-even period. And then eventually, once we're big and established and mature, the focus becomes profitability and we focus all of our energy on, on profits at the time. But it's, it's a bit of a slope that investors go, that companies go through where there's a hyper growth phase in the beginning, then they kind of reach a maturity phase and then they go through the, the decline and the, uh, the death phase. The problem that investors get into with valuation, and this is a mistake that I made, is they judge a company by its profits before the company is focused on generating profits. This is, for example, why companies like Amazon have perplexed investors for two decades now. Jeff Bezos focused all of Amazon's energy and resources on top-line growth, acquiring customers, rolling out products, rolling out services, doing everything he can to, to capture market share and grow revenue. Profits were not a focus at all. In fact, he, he tried to run the company and essentially break even for a couple of years in an effort to drive that top-line higher. So because profits were not the focus, 
the price to earnings ratio, which is a very popular metric for judging companies' value, didn't work because the earnings power of the business, the E in that equation, was understated, way understated to what the business could do. So the PE ratio was way overstated. So if you were looking at Amazon any time in the last 20 years and you just look at the PE ratio, you'd say overvalued, pass. And you would have missed out on a multi-bagger. Conversely, if I'm finding, if I'm considering a company for investment, such as Adobe, such as Apple, such as Microsoft, these are mature companies. The hyper growth is gone. And these companies are focused on profits. They are focused on delivering bottom line profitability. For companies like these, I think the PE ratio can be a great tool for figuring out valuation because the earnings power of the company is meaningful. It's what management is focused on. So if I was going to make an investment in a company like Adobe, I would very much pay attention to the PE ratio of, of the company. But investors get into trouble when they look, look at growth companies with a value investor's lens because that company isn't focused on profits, it's focused on growth. So you have to be, you have to be able to shift your mindset to focus on valuation in some cases when a company's mature. And you have to be able to, to de-emphasize valuation in other cases when a company is in a different stage of its cycle. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So, you know, I, I, I'll throw an example at you of, of a company that, that I really like and I think has, uh, great potential, but I've really struggled. I struggle with the valuation part of it because unfortunately I sit sometimes too much in the value investor camp. And so the company is CrowdStrike. And when I look at the company and the potential and what they're moving quickly towards profitability, but I, you know, I understand what you're saying because they, they are moving they're they're investing everything to grow and they're trying to take market share and there's there's lots of competition and and it's a newer field but it seems like a, a fantastic company but i just struggle with with the valuation because it's not profitable so crowdstrike is one that i own it is one that i have i agree with you i think it's an extremely high quality company growing very rap, growing very rapidly and it is one it, that's one of the harder ones to think about from a valuation perspective when i think about CrowdStrike, rather than focusing on the company's, the valuation metrics, what I'm actually looking at now is the company's market capitalization. So CrowdStrike is a $45 billion business today. It's growing extremely rapidly. I think it's going to grow 50% revenue this year and 36% revenue next year. So it's still growing very, very, very quickly. But a company like a CrowdStrike, you are betting that they are going to essentially grow for the next decade plus at a very, very high rate. And if the company can do that, the returns to investors should be, should be, should be pretty decent. The tricky thing with them, as, as you know, is they're valued so highly that if instead of growing at 50% per year, they grow at 40% per year, look out below. This company is going to get smashed, right? This stock is going to go down very, very hard. So if I was going to make a new investment in CrowdStrike today, what I would be focused on would be actually the market cap first as a $45 billion company. Do you think that this could be a $250 billion company someday? Do you think that it could be bigger than Adobe in, 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 in a couple of years, right? Doing so would give investors a 5x return from today. Okay, so that's, that's the upside if you believe that. What are the chances 
of that happening, right? And how much growth you have to is embedded in this company today and how much, how much assumptions you have to make about what this company is going to grow into. Uh, so CrowdStrike is a tricky one for, for me too. I would much prefer to invest in this company today at a $10 billion valuation. Because I could, I could easily see this company being worth $100 billion someday. I have a harder time seeing this company being worth $300 billion or $500 billion or just that <laughs> massive. So I, I do own some CrowdStrike. It's one of the riskier stocks that I own from a valuation perspective. But like you, it is one that I, I would struggle with the valuation on. Good. I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> so I, I, I guess if we could, you know, I guess one more question for valuation for me, because I'm kind of a nerd that way. When you think about a company like Visa or Costco, who are definitely more on the profitable, more mature side of their businesses, but they always trade at elevated valuations. How do you, how do you, how do you work with those kinds of companies? How do you think about them and how, you know, you know, at Costco, I think is probably one of those companies that I think everybody wants to buy. And Visa is probably kind of the similar because of the quality of the businesses, but the prices that you could pay are so elevated. It's, it's tough. Very, very much so. This is another thing that, I, that I've, I've, I've had to learn the hard way. Some businesses trade at a premium because they deserve to trade at a premium. The businesses themselves are so high quality that they trade at a premium to the market and you can still outperform by buying them because what you're betting is that in five years time, the company will still be very high quality and will still deserve a premium price tag. Now, Costco and Visa in particular have two have, have many characteristics that make them fantastic. Two of the ones that I think really stand out with investors is just how recession proof their, their, their business models are. When times are tough, people are not going to stop shopping at Costco. In fact, you could argue that pe- more people <laughs> would shop at Costco because it's such a good, a good deal. So the business cycle, what's happening in the economy, it almost doesn't matter to Costco's business. So, Investors are willing to pay a very high amount for the company's profits because it has so much faith that those profits will come in, in any market condition. Same could be said of, of, of Visa, by the way, another extremely high quality business that might, its growth might slow in a recession, but you can be pretty confident it's still going to grow during a a recession. So that is a reason that those companies trade at such high valuations because the quality of their earnings is so high. Conversely, take a company uh, like an automaker, like like Ford. I'm looking at Ford right now and its PE ratio is five. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if that's real. That's, That's from Yahoo Finance, but automakers in general tend to trade at very low PE ratios. Why is that? Because what happens to their profits when the economy turns south? They disappear. It's it's not uncommon for automakers and industrial companies and steel ma- steel makers. They're v- industri- th- those kind of companies are very sensitive to what's happening in the economy. For that reason, investors know that when bad times come, their profits are going to disappear. For that reason, they're unwilling to assign a high PE ratio or a high multiple to those earnings because they have no faith in those earnings sticking around. So that's just one thing that you have to think about. Not so sometimes paying a premium for a company 
it's it's hard to do mentally. But mm-hmm. if that company uh-huh. is very very high quality, you understand why the premium exists. Yeah, that's that's that that's very well said. And I I I looked at a chart of Costco not too long ago, and I think over the last ten years, the lowest their PE ratio has been around twenty eight or twenty nine, somewhere go. in that range. And so, if you even if you had bought it at that low rate, you still would have gotten a ten or fifteen percent return over the same period. So it's one of those things where it's, it's, you know, number wise, you see it and it's really, it's really tough to struggle with. But then when you look, there really wasn't ever a really air quote cheat time to ever buy it. Now, conversely, of course, if, if, if Costco is reaching, I mean, it's a mature company, right? So its growth rate is not going to be that high moving forward. So you are, to to me, if, if you're making an investment in Costco today, the number one risk you're taking on is valuation. Right. The, the the business is going to do what the business does. The business itself is extremely low risk. The question you have to wrestle with is, is the valuation that I'm paying going to be persistent going, going to. So that when you're that, that's why I would think about Costco. But does does Costco, the company, deserve to trade at a high P.E. ratio? In my opinion, the answer is yes. Yeah, I would probably agree. They they certainly have shown in their business results over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years that they have earned that high valuation. Very much. Yep. It, it, it's an extremely reliable company. I, I, I think it kind of goes back to what Charlie Bunker was saying about Costco and other companies like that. If, if, you, you know, if the returns on capital are higher, even if you pay a little bit more for it, you're still going to get a good, good return over a longer period of time. Yep. And that, exactly. That's such a good quote. And, and this is what, what I'm saying, by the way, is something that investors like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have also learned the, the hard way. Warren Buffett, when he first started, was 100% focused on valuation, right? He came from the school of, of Benjamin Graham, buy it cheap, buy it cheap, buy it cheap. And Charlie Munger has slowly shifted Buffett's mindset to being focused on awesome quality businesses first. And if you can get them cheap, great, but be willing to pay a fair price for them because the business quality is what matters in the long term. Yeah, totally. These have been some really great teaching lessons. I hope people are taking notes unless you're driving, maybe you're taking notes in your brain. (laughs) We've touched on business quality valuation. The other one you mentioned was potential. Talk about potential and why that's important. If I'm going to be buying a stock, if I'm going through the effort of not, if I'm going for the extra effort of searching for my own stocks, right? I want something that's different than the market can provide. Because if I'm going through this effort and I'm just going to earn market returns, I'm wasting time. Why don't I just buy the index itself, call it a day, never have to study or, or do any of that stuff? Now, the thing that there's a number of things that you can get that are different than the market. Some people just want a higher dividend yield. Than the market wants. And for them, picking dividend stocks can make sense. Some people want lower risk than the market in general. And some people want higher returns. I'm after the higher returns part. So that's why I go through the effort. If, if I'm going through this effort and my returns are lower than the market, I've wasted time, period, right? I would have been better off not, not doing any of this. So if I'm going to make an investment in a company, I want to know that the, up, the, the, the risk that I'm assuming is justified by the potential upside of, of the business. So when I'm looking at a stock, I'm, I'm, 
one of the metrics that I look at is the company's market capitalization. That's the that's that, that's roughly speaking what it would cost you to buy the entire business today. It's not technically true, but roughly that that that's uh, and in general, if I find a company that's very high quality, that's growing quickly, that I think can continue growing for a long time, the best case scenario for me is that company is small. Like really small. In fact, the smaller the smaller it is, the the, the better. Um, because let, let's say I find a very high quality co- company that's trading for a, a billion, roughly a, a billion dollars. It doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to imagine that a company that's that's growing quickly, that's high quality, can go from one billion dollars to ten billion dollars. Ten billion dollars is big in absolute terms, but that's not a massive business. And if I buy that company at a $1 billion valuation and it goes to $10 billion, I've earned roughly a 10x return on my capital, which is fantastic. If that same company enters my radar when it's at a $10 billion valuation, well, for me to earn a 10x return, it has to become a $100 billion company. There's not many companies out there that are going to grow to $100 billion. Conversely, if you look at like Apple's stock today, Apple is a $3 trillion company, trillion with a, a T. So for Apple's stock to deliver 10x returns to investors, it would have to become a $3 trillion company. I know that's not technically true when you factor in buybacks and dividends and stuff, but, but essentially Apple is already so big. If this becomes a $6 billion company, if it doubles, that would be a massive massive increase in this company's size. I mean, what's the what's the GDP of America? Is it like 30 billion, 30 trillion, something like that? Something like that, I think, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Apple is is a gargantuan company. And this is this is the thing that bothered me about a company like Rivian, for example. Rivian, a lot of people thought was going to be the, the next Tesla, and I was shaking my head because when they came public, their market capitalization was like a hundred billion dollars <laughs> or something yeah. like that. And you had to believe that this company was going to be worth like 500 billion just to earn a 5x return on the uh, on the investment. So if I was going to invest in a super risky, super speculative company like Rivian, I would want to be sure that the upside potential was 50x minimum, right? And I have a hard time seeing 50x returns from where Rivian market cap was when it when it came public. So that's just broadly speaking something I'm trying to do when I'm when I'm saying how risky is this company and is it worth betting? I want to know what is the potential upside, the realistic potential upside if I'm right. And conversely, what is the potential downside if I'm if I'm wrong? So that that absolutely factors in. And all things created equal. If you gave me two companies that were growing the same, the same high quality, I would pick the one that's smaller that that I just because I believe that it would have more upside potential. That's that's a very interesting point. Are there exceptions to that rule? Is there a case where a company that's bigger actually has greater growth potential than a smaller market cap company? And how would you identify that? That's a really tricky, tricky thing. Yeah. If you invest, you know that there are exceptions to every rule, period. I mean, uh, I personally sold all of my Apple stock when it was a $600 billion company because I thought, so huge. It's $600 billion. How can it get bigger? And it's 5 x <laughs> from, from when I thought it was too big to, to, to multiply. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that trillion-dollar companies did not exist. And now there's 
several of them that, that, that are out there. So it really depends on just the, the, the size of the business and the size of the opportunity that you really have to, 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 to keep, in, keep in mind. Apple is still growing, which is just mind-boggling. Amazon is still growing, which is just mind-boggling, given the scale that these companies are operating at. But again, that, 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 get, that gets back to the, the research of, of the company and understanding how big the market potential is for this company's products and services and potential mar- products and services in the future. That, that's, that's, that's one thing that I think surprises a lot of people is a lot of value gets created when a company launches a brand new product or brand new service that nobody saw coming and that opens up new opportunities for them. The, the textbook example of that is, is Amazon. A- Amazon has opened up so many new businesses for itself, the most profitable of which is Amazon Web Services. When I bought Amazon for the first time, Amazon Web Services was like a blip on their radar. It was like a tiny little little thing. And now, <laughs> now it's the lion's share of profits. Yeah, look at the iPhone for Apple, though. The same same kind of idea. Very much, Yeah. yeah. And not only the iPhone, but how about the iPad, right? A brand new business that spawned yeah. after I bought it and many, many years ago and just was a huge moneymaker for, for the business. Apple's very good about taking things that work and then creating brand new products and then creating billions of dollars in revenue from those products. Well, that's what's fun about investing too, is that, you know, you're talk, you've talked about surprises maybe on the downside of of selling Apple too soon, but also on the upside of like buying Tesla and just let's just see what the company can do. And a company can surprise you by overcoming crazy odds, or they could do it by creating a brand new product, a brand new business model. And guess what? As an investor, all you had to do is just sit there and wait. That's, yeah, pretty, yeah. that's a pretty cool part of investing. Very, very much. Investing, you are judging other people's actions and determining, do I want to sit with this company uh, or not? Uh, the other thing that's worth noting is it's not a binary decision either. Like when I first bought Tesla, it was an extremely speculative company. And I just devoted a teeny tiny bit of my capital to it. Over time, I saw the company execute and its stock price was was going up. And I added to my position on the way up because the business was creating a track record for itself. But more importantly to me, it was getting less risky over time, as revenue was growing, as its brand value was growing, as its business was becoming more diversified. And Tesla, the business today, the business is way less risky than it was 10 years ago when I, when I bought it. The stock's a different story, but the business itself, uh, I think at this point, is, is fairly low risk. Well, they're, they're debt-free, for one. They have operating margins that are like, what, 2, 3, 4x, the traditional automakers, it truly is a generational. I mean, I, I I'm a little bit of a fanboy of Elon at this point, so <laughs> take that take this with a grain of salt. But I mean, I, I kind of look at him like you would look at a Nikola Tesla or a Thomas Edison. You know, it's it's just been crazy to see what they've done, and I can envision myself being the grouchy value investor who never pulls the trigger and it becomes my Costco. You know what I mean? Uh, and to be fair, Tesla is probably the hardest company in the world to value. Well, Brian, this has been a ton of fun. Again, as always, we really appreciate you coming on and joining us and being so generous with your ideas and, and your lessons. So where can people learn more about you and get more of the ideas and lessons that you have 
on your YouTube channel, right? Yeah, there's a couple of places you can you can find me. I'm generally the most active on on Twitter. I tweet a couple of times a day. I also have a YouTube channel. If if you're interested in valuation or digging into the details or learning how what what I think is a quality business, we have lots of videos on my YouTube channel that talk about the the nitty gritty details of of, of investing. What's your What's your Twitter handle for people listening on? Both my YouTube channel and my Twitter handle are Brian Feraldi, so it's B R I A N F E R O L D I. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, Brian, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk to us. This was awesome. And I know I was taking notes, even though I was participating. So it was some very interesting stuff. And we, we appreciate you, you sharing all this with us. So everyone out there, go out and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. 